December 1851 in Melbourne, in the colony of Victoria. This used to be a sleepy little agricultural backwater, after the frontier wars at least, where the most exciting thing to happen was that a sheep or two got nicked during shearing season. Okay, I am exaggerating a bit, but you get the idea. The main road is still little more than a dirt track and the few permanent structures are made of wood, not stone, and to be honest, they don't actually look that permanent. In fact, the city of Melbourne is so new that it's still not uncommon to see an emu stroll across Burke Street or a mob of kangaroos making their way down Swanson Street. But the thing everyone really wants to see is when the flag runs up the pole on Flagstaff Hill, now the site of Flagstaff Station for my local listeners. Because that means a ship is in port. There might be letters from home or even better, relatives might have finally arrived after being sent for. In just a few short months, that flag will spend more time up than down. But for now, it's lowered. And really, that's just as well because right now, the last thing Governor Charles Latrobe needs is a ship full of immigrants. They're coming. Oh boy, does he know they're coming. But they're not coming to solve his woes. In fact, to be honest, they're just going to add to them. And the stressed out, overworked and frankly tired governor has quite enough woes to be getting on with. In June that year, gold had been found in the colony and the little agricultural backwater he had been gently nurturing had turned almost overnight into a rolling cauldron of anarchy. At least, this is how Latrobe sees it. (sighs) So many able-bodied men from all walks of life have left their regular employment and headed for the diggings that essential services are stretched past their limits. The public service is running on skeleton staff, and he doesn't even have any police because they've all resigned too. In fact, the only security force in the entire colony... All 227,444 square kilometres of it, most of it still uninhabited by Europeans at this point, consists of just 80 soldiers who are scattered across the diggings. If anything happens from an internal rebellion to an outside attack, Britain is at war with Russia after all and everyone's afraid of a Russian invasion, there's no force available to defend the colony. It's the worst crisis he's ever faced in his 13-year tenure. And he tells his political masters in London so, in a desperate dispatch where he begs for three things. More money to offer police recruits in the hope that higher wages will attract them to stay. A similar budget for his public service. And, gentlemen, for the love of God, will you please stop sending the second and third sons of well-connected aristocrats who are too damn lazy to get a job at home with letters of introduction requesting jobs in the colonial public service while you're at it? I don't have the money to pay them and they're a drain on my already overstretched resources. The third thing Latrobe wants, and most desperately, is a proper military force. 80 soldiers had been quite sufficient in the days of the agricultural backwater but it was far too few in this new, booming gold rush town. And the colonial office in London agrees. And what's more, they know just the regiment for the job. I'm Juliana, 
and you're listening to The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis. Hello, my fellow skeptics, and thank you so much once again for tuning in. Before we march into the circumstances that saw one of the most famous regiments of its time dispatched to the colonies, I would like to acknowledge that I am podcasting today on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri Wathorong people who have cared for and maintained the lands and waters of country since time immemorial and continue to do so today. I'd also like to recognise in this episode the Wadarang and Jajawarang people, the traditional custodians of Ballarat, which was one of the major mining centres in Victoria and the place where one of the most disruptive events of the gold rush, the Eureka Stockade, took place in 1854. Despite the destruction of their land and desecration of their sacred places by the diggers, the Wadarang and Jajawarang people maintained their connection to country and they did so during the gold rush era. They were also active participants in Gold Rush Life too. And if you're interested in finding out more, I highly recommend the book Black Gold by Fred Cahir. And now I want to talk about colonial soldiers. Specifically, I want to talk about the 40th Regiment, which was the first regiment sent to Victoria to deal with the upheaval and unrest caused by the Gold Rush in 1851. It's very easy sitting in the 21st century to dismiss the early crises of the Victorian gold rush as a bunch of rich and privileged men screaming because ordinary people too were becoming rich and privileged. But this is simplifying what was actually a series of quite serious problems for Victoria in December of 1851. Yes, it is true that many of the rich squatterocracy, this is the landowners, were worried about losing their wealth and power, but they were only seeing the issues from their own perspective. They owned the land, the sheep, the cattle and the crops, so they did make a lot of money from that, or some of them did at least. Squatting was not a golden ticket to an easy life and not every run was profitable, but these goods also formed the major backbone of Victoria's entire economy. The crops and cattle fed the people. Beef was a staple in the diet of most colonists at the time. So if there was no one to collect the harvest or butcher the cattle, then the colony would have been facing a famine. Latrobe knew this, as did his principal advisers, but many of the former labourers on the diggings didn't, and that is where a lot of this disconnect comes from. The ordinary people of Victoria didn't know just how much their quality of life depended, among other things, on wheat and beef. They saw them simply as cash crops the squatters sold to make money while paying them a measly wage. It was classism at its most dangerous. Ordinary people, it was assumed, didn't have the capacity to know and learn the way their social superiors did. So things such as economics weren't explained to them. Now, I can't blame them for choosing the goldfields over working for the squatters. Under the Master and Servants Act of 1823, which was in force at the time, a measly hour absent from service by a free servant or a labourer could be punished by flogging or a spell of imprisonment with hard labour. And those servants or labourers who 
did leave their place of work and didn't return could be hunted down under the Bushrangers Act of 1830. And if you were prosecuted under that act, it was a maximum penalty of three years in prison and whether you got hard labour or not depended on whether the judge was feeling generous. As for wool, sheep was the mainstay of most squatting runs and wool was also Victoria's primary export before and after the gold rush, incidentally, although during the rushes, of course, it was gold. If sheep weren't being shorn and wool wasn't being sent to Britain, Victoria would quickly go bankrupt. Now, the other areas suffering massively from shortages of labour were law enforcement, construction, education and shipping. Now, schools were closed for a lack of teachers because so many had gone to the goldfields. Roads, railways and homes for the booming population could not be built or were left just frozen in time, completely abandoned by their labourers. And ships were deserted by their crews in the harbour. Some enterprising captains tried anchoring well offshore and paying through the nose to have small transports come and collect their passengers, but crews still deserted. In one instance in early 1852, while anchored far offshore, the crew of a ship lowered the lifeboat and rowed into Port Phillip Bay. Now, the irate captain shouted after them, reminding them that he still had half their wages and they'd better come back if they wanted them, and they told him to keep them. They said they'd make more money on the goldfields anyway. Of course, this wasn't guaranteed, but it was certainly the mood of the day. In another instance, also from 1852, a captain who couldn't find sailors to get his ship back to England approached the governor of the Melbourne jail with a proposal. Any qualified sailors currently in prison for anything other than a capital crime would be given a pardon and half their wages up front if they would agree to come and work on the man's ship. This idea was approved and according to the display at the old treasury building, there were more than enough sailors in Melbourne jail to have sailed the captain's ship, but only two of them took up the offer and specifically because they wanted to go back to England. They didn't want to stay in the colonies. The rest indicated they'd rather serve their sentences and then head back to the diggings. Given the conditions in Melbourne jail at the time, overcrowding, sickness and poor food were a minimum, this says something. In fact, it may also say something about the conditions on ships too, but that's for another episode. To go back to 1851, the gold rush had also seen 48 of Victoria's 50 police resign all in one day. And there was so little law and order in Melbourne that people were actually feeling deeply unsafe. While violent crime didn't go up in this period, perhaps because those inclined to violent crime were lying in wait on the highways for gold escorts, there was a sharp increase in burglaries and housebreaking. Women and children were particularly vulnerable, especially if the father and husband had gone off to the gold fields. Some returned rich, others poor, and some not at all. Women started grouping together for safety and religious ministers became quasi-protectors, noting who was at the service and who wasn't and going to check if someone had failed to attend. There was no social welfare at this time and because of prejudices around employment for married women, most of them were struggling to make ends meet. After all, there was only so much laundry, sewing and scrubbing to be done in a city where most people were temporary residents. Unmarried women and girls had a better time of it. 
1851, the wages a domestic servant could command in Melbourne were almost twice those on offer in Britain and Ireland. So those ladies not planning to head to the diggings could find work at good wages and usually with better conditions too because by this time employers had realised they could no longer rely on the Masters and Servants Act, the Bushrangers Act or just good old classism to prevent their staff from leaving. They actually had to entice them to stay and treat them fairly. Those diggers who were unsuccessful on the goldfields also took advantage of this booming labour market as squatters begrudgingly raised their wages, so shearing or just general farm work actually became quite lucrative. Despite Latrobe's panic in 1851, though, the colony didn't collapse into anarchy. This was partly because by early 1852, the easy gold had already been found. There was still plenty to go around, but you had to dig for it, although it would be another year or so before deep shafts of 150 feet or more were necessary. Those who discovered that digging wasn't for them came back and things started to settle into a new normality. Labour was still short and wages were sky high though, especially in the public service. This last point was Latrobe's doing during the crisis of 1851 in a desperate attempt to keep his public service from resigning en masse he had raised their wages by 50% and threatened dire consequences for any man who left his position before the end of his contract. This worked, but it then created a problem when the crisis eased because those high wages had also been used to attract police and, unfortunately, many of these police were less than desirable recruits. The laws as they stood at the time encouraged corruption and the direct tax on the diggers through the mining licence, which was enforced by the police, made them one of the most loathed institutions in colonial Victoria. If you want more information, you can have a look at the season one episodes Gold Fever, Ballarat, Bendigo and Beyond, and the two episodes I have done on the Eureka Stockade. But now that the crisis was over, the colonial government couldn't actually afford to keep paying 150% wages. But if Latrobe slashed the wages back to where they had been, he was going to lose his public servants. So he did nothing. Latrobe gets a bad rap in history, but I think he deserves a little more sympathy. He was the equivalent of a modern-day assistant manager who is very, very, very good at their job and find themselves promoted when the manager leaves. However, the second the manager is gone, it becomes clear that the former assistant is out of their depth and had reached their competency at assistant manager level. Latrobe had been an excellent superintendent of the Port Phillip District of New South Wales, reporting to Governor Fitzroy in Sydney, but as governor of the colony of Victoria, he couldn't cope. He might have found his feet had it not been for the gold rush, but once the gleaming metal was discovered, there was little hope for him. He wasn't equipped to deal with the social upheaval, the massive population boom or any of the other issues gold brought to the colony and he didn't know how either. He resigned in 1852 and returned to England in 1853 only to discover he had become a widower in the interim, which he was absolutely devastated. Uh, he moved to Switzerland, which was where he'd gone to school and where his oldest daughter was attending finishing school and took his younger children with him. 
It was also where he met his wife and where his in-laws lived. He lived out the rest of his days in Switzerland, perfectly content by all accounts, and eventually he did remarry and had further children. But if the crisis of 1851 had ended by early 1852, which it had, did that mean the soldiers weren't coming? Not at all. Sit tight and I'll tell you about it after this break. And welcome back. Now, understandably, the British government was horrified to read Latrobe's dispatches to them during the crisis of 1851. Victoria was one of the furthest reaches of their precious empire and, given gold had been found, it was also about to make them a lot of money. They couldn't afford to lose it and the tone of the dispatches made it clear that immediate action was necessary. This was just the sort of situation that, to the imperial mind, called for a serious military intervention. Yet this raises an interesting question. Latrobe, as governor of Victoria, had the authority to request military intervention without seeking the approval of the British government. He could quite legally either have raised a militia, or though where he was going to get the men to do that, I'm not sure, or requested troops from other British colonies. And there were several units which could have been deployed to Victoria even before his letter got halfway to England. In 1851, there were two British Army regiments in New Zealand, one each in Van Diemen's Land and New South Wales, and 22 in India, all of which are closer than Australia. And Latrobe could have written to any of the governors of those places and requested they send troops. Now, he did write to Fitzroy in New South Wales as things began to come apart in 1851, but he didn't want to worry Fitzroy, so he downplayed the situation a bit and requested a small number of troops. So prior to this, there had been about 50 soldiers in Victoria from the 11th Regiment. Now, Fitzroy was actually aware things were worse than Latrobe was making out, and he did send more men. He sent 30 which gave Victoria an able-bodied defence force of 80 men. Now, this is a laughably small number and they were reinforced by 130 army pensioners. This is old soldiers who were retired on half pay on the condition that they come back into service if called to do so. Now, in theory, this was a reasonable force. In practice, it was grossly inadequate. Latrobe found that the pensioners were, in his words, not to be trusted too far and that alcoholism was a serious problem among them. They were mainly tasked with guarding the jail, the gold room, which was an early itineration of the colonial treasury, and the powder stores, with Latrobe doing his utmost to ensure they were never out of an officer's sight for too long. This wasn't just classism either. Alcohol abuse was a very serious problem. And it was harder to discipline a pensioner than a regular soldier because they were subject to slightly different rules. If they wandered away from their post to slake their addiction in a hotel, there was very little anyone could do about it until an officer arrived. The 80 men from the 11th were dispersed across the colony to act as gold escorts, which meant that Melbourne lacked an immediately available, able-bodied force of men to defend it should anything go wrong. Governor Denison in Van Diemen's Land, which is modern-day Tasmania, didn't find out how bad things had been in Victoria until 1852 
when he wrote to Latrobe to offer soldiers from the 99th Regiment, which was stationed there. Latrobe was probably a bit annoyed when, after graciously accepting Denison's offer, he received a force of pensioners. In the circumstances, though, it must be said that Latrobe was being very flippant with the security of the colony, which was ultimately his responsibility. The crisis of 1851 really was a social and political crisis, and it could have very quickly turned into a military crisis if anyone had decided to try their luck. Victoria was a sitting duck for any nation that wished to have a go, and a substantial force would have been needed to evict any potential occupier. Latrobe was also, quite reasonably too, concerned about the harbour. Any privateer or brigand could easily drop anchor on the edge of Port Phillip Bay and extort any ship attempting to enter or leave the colony. Port Phillip had no naval guns at this time and a man of war was eventually sent to prevent such a thing occurring, although there was at least one attack by pirates, although it happened in Hobson's Bay rather than Port Phillip Bay. Unlike their civilian counterparts, the navymen on board the Man of War did not attempt to lower the lifeboat and row ashore at any stage. This could have been loyalty, although it was probably fear. Like soldiers, deserting sailors faced harsh punishment. They could be flogged, branded or even shot for leaving their posts. We'll never know why Latrobe didn't take advantage of military options closer at hand the British government actually did exactly the same thing, although I think we can untangle their reasons, even if Latrobe's will always remain a mystery. Rather than order one of the closer regiments to embark at once for Victoria and then send a regiment from Britain to replace them, they instead sent one of the most famous regiments of their day, the 40th Regiment of Foot, known by the nickname the Excellers which was derived from the Roman numeral XL, meaning 40, so therefore the XLers. On the surface, though, the 40th was a strange choice. They were one of the furthest regiments from Victoria at the time, they were actually in their barracks in Ireland, and had only recently returned to the United Kingdom after more than 20 years' service in India. They also didn't leave for Victoria until June of 1852, and arrived in the colony in November when most of the issues they'd been deployed to deal with had dissipated. While the British government never published their reasons for sending the 40th to Victoria, you only have to look at the regiment's history up to that point to see why they would have been a popular choice. The 40th Regiment, which was technically the 40th 2nd Somersetshire Regiment of Foot, was first raised in Nova Scotia in 1717 and existed as a separate regiment for 167 years before amalgamating with the 82nd Regiment in 1881. At that point, it became the 1st Battalion of the Prince of Wales Volunteers, South Lancashire Regiment, and is still in existence in that form today. From 1717 until 1763, the 40th served in North America and the West Indies and fought in all the major conflicts in British North America during that time. The first time they left North America for home, if you will, they didn't go to England but to Ireland and Ireland would continue to operate as a kind of home base for them for the rest of their existence. They spent 10 years in Ireland before returning to North America 
and they were involved in all of the major battles of the American War of Independence with a report from the Times singling them out and describing their conduct as highly to their honour and commending the soldiers of the 40th for their determined courage and steadiness. The 40th was among the last of the British units to leave the newly independent United States of America in 1783, and they wouldn't return to America until the War of 1812. So far, this is all fairly standard for a British regiment in the 18th century, and this pattern of overseas deployments continued for the 40th into the 19th century as well. Between 1783, when they left the United States, and 1881, when they ceased to exist as a separate regiment, they spent a combined total of 12 years in England compared to more than 20 years in Ireland, where their regular barracks were, and 55 years on various overseas deployments. Despite having the home designation 2nd Somersetshire, they only served in that area once in 167 years, and between 1783 to 1852, which is when they arrived in Victoria, the 40th saw service in the following countries. I'm just going to list them here in no particular order. They were in France, the Netherlands, the West Indies, Malta, Egypt, Argentina, Spain, Portugal, Belgium, the United States, Mexico, Australia, India, which at that point included modern-day Pakistan, and Afghanistan. By the time they returned to Australia for their second deployment, they were one of the most well-travelled regiments in the empire and also one of the most well-known. And I'll tell you why and why they appealed to the British government facing a crisis in their colony right after this break. And I'm back, sceptics, and it's worth having your sceptical hat firmly in place as we uncover what it was the 40th got up to that earned them such a glowing reputation in the 1850s. Now, like most regiments, the 40th had made a name for itself a number of times over the years, but by 1852, their most recent achievement to make the press was the Battle of Maharajpur in 1843 in India. Now, the Battle of Maharajpur was part of the Gwalior campaign in India, and it had its roots in the crushing defeat of the British and their embarrassing retreat from Afghanistan in 1842. Now, I don't have time to go into the details of that disastrous campaign today, but it's definitely something I will be talking about in the future. Now, Maharajpur was part of the Indian Maratha Empire, but had been under the control of the British East India Company since 1818. It was ruled by a Maharaja, who was a puppet leader controlled and backed by the company and groomed at this time to be loyal to Britain. In 1843, the previous Maharaja had died and had been replaced with an eight-year-old boy. And through him, as you might expect, the British East India Company exerted even more control. This caused discontent in the region and buoyed by the British defeat in Afghanistan, an uprising led to the removal and imprisonment of the Maharaja and his family. And despite hysterical British reports to the contrary, he was not murdered. And the establishment of an anti-British independent government in the area. This didn't last long. The error in judgment made by the nationalists in Mahara was to assume that the armies of the British Empire and the East India Company had been completely crushed. They'd absolutely suffered an embarrassing defeat and the withdrawal from Kabul had cost them dearly in terms of men, animals and equipment. 
but they had not been wiped out and India was still very much under firm British control apart from pockets of similar resistance. It was a place of strength from which the British could regroup, rearm and counterattack the rebels, which they did in short order. The Battle of Maharajpur was one of many fights between Indian nationalists and the armies of the British Empire and the East India Company in 1843. And the action at Maharajpur that earned the 40th Regiment such high praise had been the capture of rebel artillery positions. Now, the heavy losses sustained in doing so were left out of the official reports and the regiment was singled out by the Governor-General of India for special praise and his proclamation that they took with bayonets the batteries in front of Marajapur was picked up by the press. This summary then led to lurid newspaper coverage that positioned the men of the 40th Regiment as examples of the grit and spirit possessed by the ruling race. For who else but true British men could successfully storm an enemy artillery position armed only with bayonets and live to tell the tale? The important caveat left out of every public report and only revealed in the private papers seen by government ministers and army chiefs was that the nationalists had used up most of their shells by the time the 40th reached their positions and the foot soldiers had advanced under cover of their own artillery fire. The Maharas, rather than give up their heavy guns, had decided to fight to the death, which is what prompted the bayonet battle, and they had been armed mostly with swords, which were not as effective as the bayonets the British carried. But the idea that a single regiment had victoriously taken on artillery with bayonets caught on with the British public. Interestingly, British people at this time deplored militarism in their own country, but tales of the military's exploits in exotic corners of the empire were always popular. However, the lurid newspaper accounts and breathless eyewitness reports, many of them which did not come from eyewitnesses at all, but were made up by journalists in Britain, ignored that the Battle of Maharajpur had come very close to being a disaster for the British. General Sir Hugh Gough, the commanding officer, had made a series of rash decisions, including sending his infantry to capture heavy artillery positions without waiting for their own heavy artillery to arrive. They were covered by light artillery, which is much less effective in this kind of scenario. Hundreds of British soldiers died needlessly because Gough, seeking glory, sent them head-on into guns and they were cut to pieces. The 40th had been lucky to be in reserve so there were less shells for them to contend with by the time they broke through and captured the positions. However, this didn't make for a good story and so creative licence was taken by the press and the 40th Regiment became fated as a kind of 19th century SAS. I think this is why the British government chose to send them to Victoria. Latrobe's dispatches gave the impression of a colony falling apart at a time when the geopolitical situation was weighed against Britain. What they needed was a crack regiment who could restore order. And the 40th was the perfect choice. They'd already done so in India after all and it would be much easier in Victoria. The racist views of imperial Britons at this time come into force here. If British soldiers could take out Indians armed with artillery they could certainly quell any mild rebellious ideas that were present 
in the minds of the mostly white and British population of Victoria. It probably didn't hurt, in the government's view at least, that the 40th reputation would precede them. Most people in the colony would have heard of them before and any troublemakers thinking of taking advantage of a breakdown in social order might think twice if they knew the famous excellers were on hand to deal with it. What the men of the 40th thought about being sent to Australia is not recorded. It was the second time they'd been, and according to the official regimental history, they didn't enjoy it the first time, although most of those men would have retired out of the regiment by the time they came back. Many of the veterans of the India and Afghanistan campaigns, on the other hand, were still with the regiment, including Captain John Thomas, who would eventually lead the assault on the Eureka Stockade. Although also there were quite a few relatively fresh recruits from Ireland and England who had joined at home and were yet to see combat when they arrived in Victoria. Generally, however, we know that the colonies at this time were seen as an easy posting by British soldiers. There were no more annoying convicts to guard and the frontier wards were over in the southeastern colonies. Duties included escorting gold to the treasury, guarding public buildings, including the jail and powder stores, and manning coastal batteries which were beginning to spring up as the press drummed up fears of a highly unlikely Russian invasion. While it might have been boring, it had the added bonus of lacking in deadly tropical diseases, although the regular culprits of smallpox, typhus, cholera and dysentery were ever-present, and there were no large predators to sneak into the barracks and drag a man away before he even knew he was lunch. <laughs> the downside was that Melbourne, and the rest of Victoria, was still being built. And so the barracks consisted of poorly maintained tents that leaked when it rained and blew away when the wind got up. To the annoyance of the colonial government, which by this stage was led by a new governor, Sir Charles Hotham, wherever the military was posted, they launched a campaign of paper warfare to have barracks built for their men. The irony of this was that while the tents were an imperfect solution, they were probably healthier than a barracks environment and the surgeon's reports from the time show a marked decrease in the number of men hospitalised with common illnesses of that period. Now, whether this was due to living in tents rather than overcrowded and unsanitary barracks, however, we can only speculate. What is clear is that many of the camp hospitals were busiest after the Eureka Stockade, when, of course, they had to care for the dying and wounded. And before I close this episode, I have one final story to share regarding the 40th Regiment and the Eureka Stockade. Now, had the stockaders known this in 1854, it might have changed their entire plan. But as they say, you don't know what you don't know. Unfortunately for the stockaders, what they didn't know became their undoing. And I'll tell you about it right after this break. And we're back. As mentioned earlier, the commanding officer at Eureka was one Captain John Thomas, who was a long-term veteran of the 40th Regiment. Now, Thomas was fairly unusual among the British officer class at this time because he had been to staff college and he never purchased a commission in his life. 
He earned every promotion he ever received right up until he retired as a lieutenant colonel. Before coming to Victoria, however, he'd been a lieutenant or a lieutenant, as the British would say, during the Maharajpur campaign and he earned his promotion to captain after he was wounded there. Interestingly, despite Maharajpur happening 11 years and a world away from Eureka, it would have important consequences for men on both sides of the stockade. Maharajpur was actually very similar to Eureka, although there was no stockade, but it was a fortified position held by a well-armed and entrenched enemy who had political aims rather than military ones. The major differences were in the number of men on both sides, the terrain on the ground, and of course the presence of artillery. Now, these are significant, but the aim and objectives were the same, and there's no substitute for experience. During this campaign, Thomas experienced the near disastrous actions of General Goff. They actually nearly cost Thomas his life. He got shot in the thigh and had to be evacuated and lost quite a bit of blood. But he appears to have put the lessons he learned in India into practice when he led the attack on Eureka. Instead of a full frontal assault in daylight, he attacked from the rear at night using a combination of skirmishes and regular infantry in highly mobile formations. He also placed his cavalry on the flank of the attack rather than at the forefront, which had happened in India, which made them more difficult targets for the insurgents. It also allowed the mounted men to engage the stockaders from the side while the infantry fought them from the rear. So effectively, the stockaders had to fight a battle on two fronts, which is not great tactically. Now, these decisions are almost the polar opposite of what Thomas witnessed Goff do at Mirajapur in very similar conditions. Now, sadly, Thomas never wrote memoirs or kept a diary, so there's no definitive proof that his decisions at Eureka were based on witnessing the results of incompetent command in India. But what I think is clear is that the 40th Regiment were under the command of an experienced, sensible officer who was not inclined to needlessly spend his men's lives in the pursuit of death or glory. Thomas was an officer who wanted to win, certainly, but he wanted to do it by spending as few lives as possible in the process. Unfortunately, as with any military campaign, lives are always lost. At least 30, but probably more like 60, stockaders and civilians were killed at Eureka. And I'm currently working on my thesis about the lives of the seven soldiers who also died in the conflict. In fact, that's the whole reason I've been researching the 40th Regiment. Four of the Eureka Seven, as I've taken to calling those soldiers killed, were from the 40th. And the other three men were from the 12th, which was sent in 1854 to reinforce the 40th at Ballarat. You can actually visit their graves today if you want and the graves of many stockaders and civilians who were involved in that event at the old Ballarat Cemetery in Victoria. Enter through the main gates, stroll down Soldiers Walk and you'll find the small enclosed military cemetery near the back. This is where the Eureka Seven, along with some of their comrades who died of disease while in the colony, are buried. You won't find Captain Thomas, however, who went on to have a glittering military career and retired in England, dying peacefully in his sleep, nor will you find the leader of the stockaders and later Victorian politician Peter Lawler, who is buried at the General Cemetery in Melbourne. 
He's a man I'll be talking more about another time too, but I think I'm going to leave it there for today. So thank you all so very, very much for joining me. New episodes of The Skeptical Historian Writes a Thesis will be available every second Tuesday from wherever you get your favourite shows. If you want to get in touch with me, you can head to my website, www.skepticalhistory.com. That's sceptical with a K. Or get in touch on social media. I am Juliana Byers on both LinkedIn and Instagram. And join me next episode for another sceptical take on the mystery that is history. Bye now. The Skeptical Historian is researched, produced and hosted by me, Juliana Byers. You can find a full list of resources used in my research by going to my website and clicking on Sources. Sound effects are by Adobe Creative Cloud, Pixabay and Epidemic Sound, used under the appropriate licence. The music track The Whistle Funk by Telsonic was also used appropriately. Podcast hosting is by RSS.com. See you next time, skeptics.